You're listening to Straight Shooters, a straightforward golf podcast that'll straighten out your game. And here are your hosts, Keith Bennett and Henry Statina. All right, welcome back to the Straight Shooters Golf Podcast. Keith, we have ourselves a fantastic interview today. Uh, Luke Benoit, Director of Instruction at Interlochen, uh, PhD in Motor Learning and Control, uh, fantastic experience doing his own research in golf. Uh, he's the founder of Rip Golf and, and the Rip Stick, a new training aid out there for improving club head speed. And then he's also the Golf Digest Best Young Teachers list, as well as one of the best in state of Minnesota. Um, plenty of awards, including a, a PJ Section Teacher of the Year award. Uh, Luke, welcome on the show. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. It's fun to be here and uh, love what you guys are doing. I think it's so critical to teach golfers a little bit more about the motor learning, which is really the science that underlies all of it, right? It's great stuff. Absolutely. That's something that Keith and I have both been diving into over the past, I don't know, five, seven years or so. And, and with your experience, we'd love to pick your brain and hear about all the experiences that you've had in that field. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, Luke, give us a little uh, background on yourself. Um, bring us up to speed on how you got into motor learning, how you, how you connected it to golf and uh, early influences that sort of jumpstarted your career. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up playing golf um, and, and I was such an external cue player from just an early age. I was like, let's see what I can do with the golf ball to make a curve. So that's how I thought about golf as a player. And then as I got into it more, and I think a lot of good teachers um, probably have the same sort of experience where you start thinking about your body and what's going on. And, and there's so many different ways to learn the game. And you kind of go through that video phase and so many different ways to learn, right? Uh, and I realized that for me as an instructor to maybe take it to the next level, I wanted to have that education to kind of under, ha, understand the really what's going on at a deeper level and help people learn, right? And I think you guys would agree that PGA is, is good for a lot of things, but they don't do a great job of teaching people how people learn, and there's so much nuance to it. Um, so that's where I went into um, kind of looking at the research, and right away I started reading about external and internal cues for learning, and some of the research made tons of sense to me, some of it did not. And so that's where I started really digging into uh, Gabrielle Wolf's work, and I'm sure you guys are aware of it. Um, and I looked at some of those studies that, that she had done, and some of them didn't add up, and, and a lot of it was about the cues she was using. And I don't know how much of you, you guys have looked at that, but one of the cues she used in a chipping study was on the backswing, left arm straight, right arm bent, both arms straight at impact. And then on the follow through, right arm straight, left arm bent. And, uh, and so you think about the complexity of that cue and how difficult that would be to deliver. And it's just really hard to hold in the mind. It's almost a dual task thing, isn't it? And so we know, you know, all the research on dual tasks, if you're thinking about two things at the same time, it's hard to do either of them well. And so what I, what I kind of basically broke it down to is this internal external cue thing is we don't have enough time with internal cues to actually make them automatic. And I think that's one reason external cues are so much more successful. So that's where I got into it. And then also, um, you know, just if the cue is poor, you're not going to get a good result with it. So I think some of the entire research literature was just loaded with bad internal cues. So I did a couple studies and I, I changed some of the cues. Um, found a simpler internal cue and we had different results. So my, my whole claim is, you know, I probably still teach mostly with internal cues first, but there's a lot of nuance to it, as you guys know, or, I'm sorry, external cues first. And then there's a lot of nuance then. 
and, and depending on the type of learner too, as you guys know, I mean, if you're teaching a hockey player or baseball player, external cues are really easy, aren't they? Swing to right field or swing to left field or open or close the face. It's really easy stuff. Um, but if you teach a gymnast or a dancer, they're pretty good at understanding how their body moves uh, and they can do it. So that's kind of the background. And that's, that's um, just finished up my thesis and I'm happy to kind of send it out to you guys. We're going to try to get it published in Golf Digest pretty soon is the hope. Um, but uh, basically, it basically points to more nuance than is what out, what, what's out there currently. So, And part of your study, too, is that you were saying that, um, you know, the study wasn't long enough. Is that correct? Like, you know, what Dr. Wolf was doing, just we needed a little bit longer time uh, for yeah. practice. Yeah. I mean, if you if you only practice a cue for um, a day and then you test on it the next day, you know, is that a fair way to actually measure it? Because we have all this, we have mountains of anecdotal evidence. So if you go read a Golf Digest magazine, it's 60% internal cues. If you go ask Ben Hogan, what was he thinking about to actually improve at age 37 uh, and start playing really, really a high level? He talked about cupping his wrist, right? But that is something he probably worked on months and months and years. And he grooved that with internal cue thoughts. And then he won majors probably thinking more about external cues and targets, right? Mm -hmm. So you might find that the learning and the performance are very different. And I think sports psychology has got it dead on. And I think most coaches understand that we're better performing with the external cues, but we don't know that much about the learning because we've only done one to three day studies. There's very few. I did a six week study with a little more practice and I found a little bit different result. But if I had stopped my study after uh, a week, I wouldn't have found that result. So different results, different timelines. And, and just for everybody to catch everybody up to speed, we've talked about it before, but what is external cue versus an internal cue? It seems, you know, it seems second nature to us, but might not be for someone listening. Right. External is more related to the environment or maybe the implement you're using. Um, the golf ball, the ground, the club is most common in golf, right? Or you could think about a pool noodle or something out there. Some sort of constraint would kind of do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Internal is more thinking about the body. Um, and... and as you get into it, I think, you know, you guys probably agree that get those external cues going right away, but there's a lot of nuance there. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm sure you're aware too. It's like, if it, it, it has to do more with how you're driving with the student, right? You kind of, you, you speak to them, you hear their background in sports, you ask them questions and, and you can't just go right into, you know, kind of how you like to bulldoze the lesson. If, if something, you know, if something you've been working for three students prior, isn't going to work for the the person in front of you, then you have to, to adapt to that. But uh, yeah, it does seem from our experience, at least that, you know, most times external cues do resonate with a lot of students uh, as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, and, um, you know, so I would usually start that way and then move on if that's not working. Um, you know, whenever you have somebody thinking about where their elbows are at, uh, it can get complicated. And, and, and the, the background of the person is so important for that, isn't it? It is. And why is it, why is it so complicated to think about your body during emotion? Well, I think it's a dual task thing. Um, you know, the, the constrained, constrained action hypothesis is what Gabrielle Wolf and Prince and some of these people have come up with, which basically means like, you're basically trying to think about things that are complicated to do. And I think if you're trying to get your arms and body to do the right thing at the cost of actually making the golf ball or the golf club do the right thing, you're not going to get the outcome you want, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you're trying to focus on lots of things. It's just like go back to Gabby Wolf's, um, you know, thinking about left arm straight in the backswing, right arm straight or right arm bent, and both arms straight at impact. That's just a lot for a beginner to load up in their brain. Mm 
for sure hit the golf ball right so it's such a terrible cue that um we don't really know if it's gonna <laughs> gonna be effective yeah absolutely yeah what are your thoughts on uh humans being tool users and that you know subconscious conscious mind you know subconscious controlling the body is that something that you kind of have, have done a little research on or thought on well i think you know you know you kind of watch like motor learning from a young age like even kids like tell tell a toddler to grab grab the keys off the desk and then put it in the keyhole they're not thinking about their elbow are they or their hand are they <laughs> exactly tool use is very natural and i would even say like even even the animal kingdom i don't think animals are ever thinking about what their body's doing they're just naturally adapting to what's there you know if they got uh, if they got a, a boulder in their hand they're going to throw it right um, yeah. the tools we have around us um, are just part of what what operated what makes it make us humans i think so um, and, and you guys see it with the golf club, like how that golf club will change somebody's motor pattern, whether it's heavier or lighter is pretty crazy, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So adapt. And, and a really cool test is like, um, you know, like, let's say you put a target out there and you have somebody throw a ball at the target. A good athlete can pick up a ball of many different weights. It could be a ping pong ball, could be a boulder, could be a baseball. And they know by the time they release it, how hard they need to throw that thing to have it be at the target. Right. The higher level skill, the more they're able to apply the force with the tool at hand, which is really interesting, I think. That is cool. You know, that's interesting regarding uh, the, the weight, the size and the distance that the ball is from the target if we're tossing it. You know, I, I find that like you growing up playing golf, I was a very field oriented player. I, I basically saw the shot that I wanted to play. And then I, I knew how the tool was supposed to work in order to execute it, especially around the greens. And uh, as I became an adult, I finished growing and I stopped getting better because of my uh, maturation. And so I had to look for other avenues on, on getting better. And I, I went down that technique route and the video and looking at how my body needed to move. And I got so frustrated that I ended up giving up the game for uh, like 14, 14 to 16 months. And, you know, we watch young kids and they're able to swing effortlessly. They, they make nice looking golf swings. They can hit the ball the right distance. What are your thoughts on that in regards to um, maybe how our instruction might be kind of getting in the way of, of adults and, and their improvement process? Yeah, I think that's really key for, for adults. I mean, um, I don't think many people appreciate how difficult it is to actually groove a pattern and for have it to have it self-sustain under pressure, right? So we think about these tour players and, and they might work for a year on a move. And I honestly look at the footage from a year later, it doesn't look that different, does it? No. So they're trying to change stuff, but that's their move. And so I think once the time you're about 18, your swing is kind of your swing and you can make some changes, but at the high level, it's really hard, isn't it? Mm. Um, and then like, for me, like as a kid, I would just play hooks all around the golf course. You know, I was just, I just, that's the shot I saw. That's the way I swung it. I would kind of jump out of my posture and hit a flip hook. And so I practice fades all the time, but then I go play in a state open and I draw it. <laughs> and that's so funny. I <laughs> do the same I thing. The more I go back. Are you the same way? Oh yeah. I do the same thing. I mean, I, I all through college, I mean, 30 yard hooks, I mean, wow. you know, for sure. Yeah. And, but I was but I was longer back then. Right. And I was, you know, felt like a probably more, more natural with, with that pattern. And then sure enough, like you said, you, you're like, 
you get told by outside influences, well, you can't, you know, you can't play with that much curve on the ball. And so you're like, well, I got to take curve off if I'm going to play at a higher level. And then all of a sudden you're totally getting the way of what felt good and natural. And, and you look at guys like Lucas Glover and, you know, some people who really move the ball from right to left and, and they're, you know, from all sounds of it, they're trying to go back to curving it a boatload because, you know, they tried to hit it straighter and they, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Those patterns we learn at a young age are so hard to get away from. And I mean, you guys know, I mean, how many players will radically change their shot shape and have success? Yeah, not, not a whole lot, at least at the highest level, I would imagine, or they kind of fade away into, you know, like, you know, Luke Donald would be a good example, I guess, of, you know, chasing distance and, and kind of losing what made him good, which was the short game and the putting and, and, you know, even Rory's talking about that recently of trying to change what he's doing and kind of falling into some, some pitfalls. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I think, I think there's the allure of let's try to make this better, but um, you know, the number of players that have tried new techniques or new coaches and actually become irrelevant as a result of it is, is pretty high. Uh, so it's a scary thing to try to change patterns, but at the same time, do you want to just keep doing what you're doing if you're, if you're not there, right? So right. It's a gamble and we're all trying to play that game of, can I get a little better? And, and the, and the ultimate question is motor equivalence. Like, can I do this as well, a different way or better? We don't know that, do we? I mean, we, we know what a good downswing looks like in a good club face position, but yeah, nobody's got this thing figured out. It's hard. Yeah, exactly. And going back to what you're saying about like the junior golfers, what Henry brought up is like, you take a look at the drive chip and putt, you know, competition this last couple of weeks. And I mean, you see a lot of good, a lot of good patterns and a lot of good golf swings that, you know, you just, wonder you know will you see that golfer in years to come you know but they look so good at the moment you're like why would you change anything just let them keep developing it's almost like a kind of hitting the lottery if if they get a coach that doesn't try to you know change anything or they don't have any crazy ideas about wanting to change anything for themselves yeah it would be a really interesting experiment if you wind up all the kids that are too handicapped stage 13 and you you had all the pros rate their chances of success. I think right. it would be hard to tell hmm. um, because some of those funny patterns work. I mean, Felix probably would have changed, right? But, uh, you know, I, I, I think there are maybe some things that you could pick apart, you know, like if, if, if the plane's pretty good and the release pattern is pretty passive, you would expect them to be a better player. But in the, in the scheme of things, you know, how you play and how you manage your game. I mean, Luke Donald hitting it, what was he, 268 off the tee at like 60% of the fairways. Right. And he was world number one in 2011, a decade ago. I mean, that's a crazy stat, how good you can be and drive it that bad. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So to expound on that, you know, we, you know, for, for everybody listening, they're probably going, well, at 18, if my pattern's my pattern and I'm an over the top slicer, you know, like, am I always going to be, am I always going to be, you know, slicing it 40 yards to the right? Um, and like you said, you know, things can change. Um, but predominantly what we, what we know, we kind of go back to under pressure, but obviously things can change. And, and through, you know, your research and, and what Henry and I believe is that, you know, external cues and, you know, focusing on the golf club um, or the target or, you know, something like that can be a lot easier way to learn. Um, so, and I listened to a podcast that you were on with Cordy Walker um, talking about, you know, kind of giving him a golf lesson. So like, what are, what are some good, 
external cues that you go to for somebody who comes with a very generic kind of over the top open club face move uh, in a lesson environment? Yeah, I think, I mean, you make great, great point there, Keith, like, you know, we're talking a lot of tour players and do we want to change the pattern or not to try to get from plus four to plus six. Right. But for the average guy that's slicing it, I mean, you got to get rid of the slice. You can't play a slice. Um, so, you know, two to three degrees out to in and hit a little fade is fine, but you, I had a, I had a seven handicap come the other day and he was like nine degrees out to in. That's ridiculous. So right. for a guy like that, I, I would always start with the least invasive way first, you know, just kind of put a tee outside to the right and say, swing over the tee or put tees at a kind of a gate. So they had to swing, you know, inside out. And, and if that clicks great, because the least invasive way is going to be the easiest way for them to take it on the golf course. And you want them to have the least invasive way possible so that they can use it. Um, and then you start throwing in the noodles there. Um, one of my favorites is just, I call it the polo drill where I just pretend that they're on a horse and polo, you know, you got to whack down near your right foot going out towards the target right. and you're really swinging inside out. So I'll just exaggerate that feel for them. And I keep stressing over and over as I'm sure you guys do. Let's get, let's get too far and then come back, right? Let's go too far and then come back. And once you kind of show them the hook and, and, and as you're doing this sort of stuff, you always make, make the degree of difficulty easier at first with the contact. So you put it on a tee, use an easy club, like a seven iron. And then once they're able to hit a draw or a, uh, a hook with a seven, then they're kind of believing it. And it's fun for them to get that distance bump. You get from 140 to 160 off the tee because you're hooking it instead of slicing it. And that's a, a big part of getting the buy-in with the student to understand that, oh, this is maybe good. I can hit it 20 years further. It feels great. And that's the motivation they need to keep grinding on it. And then you got to decide, you know, as a coach, do I really want them to draw it? Is that going to be better? If they've seen fades their whole life, maybe a slight fade's a better shot. You kind of parse that out. But I always encourage them, let's get the opposite shape going first. And then you get back to zero. And then you can decide what you think is going to play better for you. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's very valuable to learn how to hit an extreme hook, like shut the face and swing, you know, five, eight degrees into out and just see what you can do to alter the club in your hand to make the ball curve in the air, right? At the end of the day, it's just a game of spin. You're just trying to put certain spins on the ball so you can alter the spin by altering the face and the path. And I think that's an interesting point that you brought up and one that I hadn't thought of before. It's like, you, you do got to get that buy-in from the student. Like, Hey, I can, I, they, they've probably never in their life seen a ball go right to left off their club face. Mm -hmm. And so just by seeing them, seeing that ball take off their club face right to left, you know, I've heard, I've heard students say like, I've never drawn the ball or I didn't know I could do that, you know? And yeah. then, like you said, you've got their interest and in, in you've peaked, you've peaked them wanting more. And then, you know, you, if you see them 10 more times, you can mellow that out. But, you know, I think that's a good point you bring up just getting their confidence going right off the bat, you know, putting it on a tee and making it easy for them. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty fun to see that. And you wonder why so many people just continue to uh, struggle with it. People that have never taken a lesson, it's almost a low hanging fruit at some level, isn't it? Right. You, you guys agree? Absolutely. Oh yeah. A lot of people are so freaked out by the, the, the typical golf lesson uh, thought of that. And, um, and when they haven't, it's, yeah, you're a lot, you're, yeah, beginners, beginners are fantastic. I love beginners. They're so open-minded and they have, you know, and they're, they're up for anything and they see like, you can build a nice golf swing with a student in, you know, in no time if, if they don't, you know, have any other preconceptions. Right. Right. The contact may take a while, but you can make it look pretty, pretty fast. Can't you? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. 
taking it with that uh, that amateur golfer, you, you mentioned the seven handicap out to in. You put the tee down and had them working on their, their path and face. From that from that lesson to where you change their swing pattern, give them a little bit different ball flight. How long and what's that process look like for them to be able to maybe take that on the golf course, be able to execute it pretty comfortably and consistently, maybe even under pressure? Right. I mean, everybody's different. So the guy I had was 60 years old. And I think if you you look at the amount of time it change, takes to change a pattern, the older you are, the longer it takes. I think you guys agree. And then the other part is the personality of the person and the flexibility, the mental flexibility. And, I, and maybe a third part would be like, have they played other sports at a high level? Because if you've played baseball at a high level or you've played hockey at a high level, that flexibility to change a path is a piece of cake. Honestly, mm. that's not hard, right? Mm. Uh, so those are the factors. And then most people, I mean, I'm sure you guys agree, like you can fix 99% of slices in one lesson. Mm -hmm. Most people, if they're not curving at the direction I want 32 minutes in the lesson, I'm like, this isn't going well. You know, it's not that hard to do it. Now we got to get control of it. But to get the exaggeration going first and to prove the premise and the kind of hypothesis that we can hit a hook is pretty important right away. And then you, at the last 10 to 15 minutes of the lesson, you try to get some control on it. So that's my opinion on it. But what do you guys think? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I'd say one of the hardest parts about being in a lesson with a student, like you said, that mental flexibility is like, you've got a, you know, a short amount of time to ask the right questions and to gather the intel on that person and to kind of make some snap decisions as far as how quickly you think they're going to adapt to one way or the other and how receptive you think they're going to be to one thing or the other. And you, then you have to come up with a decision pretty quick and you get better at that the more lessons you give. Um, but it's so hard, in my experience, it's so hard to tell like what mental baggage a student is bringing to the lesson T, you know, like, how do you truly get under the hood and go, you know, this guy's been thinking about something in regards to externally rotating his right elbow or, you know, ulnar deviation and, you know, left wrist flexion on the way down in the, to, you know, to simply get the club to lay flatter, you know, something as simple as that, you know, to, to, to try to get, to that student, a, a simpler message. It's it's hard because you don't know that you, they'll nod their head and they'll accept your your cueing, right? If whether it's internal external, but you just don't know for sure if they're actually focusing on that cue during the lesson. So it's like sometimes if they're not doing it, it's like, does the cue not work, or are they not really listening? You know right. what I mean? It's like how do you decipher that? That's a really great question. And, um, you know, I often, and as you guys probably do, like in, into a lesson, I'll ask them every five, 10 minutes. Okay. Tell me what you're thinking about on this shot. Right. And then it, sometimes you hear the most bizarre things, something you did not tell them. And, and I love that candor, but they're thinking about their left ear and they need to pronate their left ear. Well, what the heck does that have to do with the <laughs> Right. Exactly. But they think about it because it's some garbage they got from somebody else or their uncle. So, right. Who knows? Yeah, it, I just find that so interesting where it's like, you know, and I've done the same thing where you have to almost be like, on these next five golf balls, I only want you thinking about X, you know, mm -hmm. and just like almost you almost have to set the stage for them because it's so hard. Like we we've both all three of us have hit enough shots and played around with enough, you know, mental focuses and, and placing our attention on different things that we know kind of how to hold the tension on on one thing at a time. But to expect someone to do that the first time that you're seeing them in a lesson environment without ever having really been introduced to it is uh, 
could be a tall ask, but also if you, like you said, in your, you know, in your thesis, if you queue it up, right, it might, it might not be as difficult as it sounds. Right. Yeah. And, and just, um, the, the relationship and making them feel safe about hitting bad shots is so key, isn't it? Like, right. I often just premise it. I say, hit me some awful shots, but make it look pretty and make this thing look inside out on the video. Right. Yeah. Then you get the buy-in usually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Keith and I have been talking lately about our own games and how, you know, we, you know, sometimes we just end up arriving at, you know, the course or the tournament and, and, warming up and trying to find something that works that day, you know, so going back in the database and, and looking for something that works. And sometimes during a lesson, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in it with the student and I'm, I'm giving them the information the way that I think of it at the moment, but sometimes it triggers something in the past that maybe that they heard or read. And, and if that clicks for them and if they start producing the ball flight that we're looking for, Hey, so be it. Um, you know, there, there's lots of ways to get the, get it done. But uh, at the end of the day, all we're looking to do is to improve that player's ball flight. The way they perceive it is, is their own business. Right, exactly. If, if they're thinking about their left ear pronating and it's working for them, you're not going to tell them it's not the right cue, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you got to ride with it. How do you, uh, how do you deal with, with people, you know, this whole thing of like, you know, what it should feel like, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it should feel like this. And Henry and I, you know, go back on this all the time and, and you know, we've never hit a golf ball in another person's shoes. So we'd have no idea how it should feel like for them. But that's one of the biggest questions I get is, you know, what should it feel like? Or, you know, how do I do that? Right. We talk about putting the club face square to your, you know, club face parallel to your spine angle on the backswing. And the number one question I get in an Instagram post is I, I see what you're doing, but how do I do that? And it's almost like, I don't know how, you know, we, we laugh about it. We're like, I don't know how you do that. Like, I don't know. You know, yeah. but it, you, you want to almost come up with an answer because you don't want to sound like you don't know. But at the end of the day, I don't know how you are going to get that club face parallel to your spine. If you no. put it, if you put it there, you'll know how you did it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like one of those kind of those. So what do you, what do you, what do you kind of, when you have a student who wants a feel or a swing thought or a, you know, a how to, you know, how do you navigate those waters? Well, I, I just say you need to learn to understand feedback. And if you understand feedback, you can start to look at the video or you can um, find a way to look at the ball flight to get there. But you know, the feel is not going to, going to, going to make sense until you actually get the golf ball to do what you want it to do. Right. Right. It's such a hard ask for people if they haven't, you know, understood that shallowing it actually is, you know, 45 degrees down or parallel to whatever plane you're on. Right. It's just such a hard ask for people, but if you can, uh, you know, have them hit some good shots, get some feel for it. You got a chance, but it's a hard one, isn't it? Man, I think that we need to be able to just take all the golfers and teach them the ball flight patterns and the impact laws that produce them. If they can understand that, they'd get so much more out of their golf shots. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And yet, when you read a golf magazine, how much is dedicated to basic ball flight? You know, none. Great because it's keeping us in business, but it's not making golfers better, is it? No. <laughs> no I mean, that, that, that's the name of the game. Yeah. I mean, I have a ball, fly, I have the nine ball flight chart up on, you know, where I teach, right. The face and the path and then all the curves on the bottom. And, and I mean, nobody who comes in for a lesson. And obviously that's probably the reason why they're there for a lesson. You know, nobody knows why the ball does what it does. I mean, I, I joke about this, like it's 2021 and people still don't know why the ball is slicing. It's like, well, your, your path is over the top and your face is open. It's like, 
but the wide variety of answers that you get as to why they feel their ball is curving from left to right is quite phenomenal in, in the year 2021. Yeah. Why, why we can't conclusively, you know, as a golf community say the face is open and the path is, you know, left for a you know right-handed golfer and you need to have the face closed and the path right to hook it. And it's like, that you know coming up with that answer is is so hard for a lot of golfers it's almost like like you said flip through a golf digest and you'll never hear anything about face and path which is kind of crazy yeah i almost wonder if there's some sort of uh it doesn't maybe it doesn't sell maybe it's just too sciencey for people but uh it's it's what we do every day it's just correct slices right. and hooks and and then you start to i i tell my my young junior golfers like your job after our first three lessons is ball flight we're not going to talk about ball flight unless you absolutely can't fix it yourself. Right. My job is biomechanics. I make this pattern easier to perform, but if I have you hold it with your toes, you got to be able to hook and slice it, figure it out. This is what we've done before. Yeah. So you make them memorize the ball flight loss. I mean, I just make sure they can curve it both ways. And if right. they can curve it both ways, you know, every lesson we start, that's our warm up. Six irons draws fades. And that right. way they know it back of their hand by the, you know, by the 10th, 10th lesson, they're like, okay, I could curve it both ways. And, then I can fix it on my own. And then we find a better way to do it by improving maybe their plane or their, you know, weight pattern, whatever's going on, but they can always do it. And that's, I think, important to be able to fix it on their own. And I tell them, I'm going to get less lessons out of you. You're not going to come back crawling to me telling me you're slicing it, right? but you're going to be a better player. And that's great. I don't care. We can work on other stuff. There's always more to do, whether it's mental or technical, there's more to do. So you like in the early lessons, um, doesn't really matter quite yet what it looks like on camera for you is you know you're they're just learning to make the ball do something in the air on purpose yeah i think you know everything's a little different uh you know obviously if i've got a beginner i'm working a lot more in sequence than i might be ball flight i want to make sure that it's powerful and the plane is decent and i don't really care too much if it's curving a little right or left you know um but as they start to make contact and they're basically hitting 80, 90% of their seven iron solid, then I'm, I'm definitely interested in it. To me, if you're breaking 80 it's, or breaking 90, you should definitely be understanding how to curve it. If you're shooting 110, you probably need to work on some simple stuff and just fix it. Right. But um, yeah, I think junior golf, I think too often people will just take the hand, take the, uh, take the easy route and just give kids one shot shape and um, just say, this is what we're doing. But if you, if you want to get good, you have to be able to fix it. And that's the most important thing, right? Of fixing it, isn't it? Working it both ways. So yeah. it sounds to me like you spend a lot of time with, with kids. Um, I'm assuming that's not all of what you do. Working with the kids, it's maybe more of a, a routinely coaching type atmosphere. Is that right? And then what's the adult program life that you do? Yeah, we've got, I mean, uh, Interlochen's, um, we got a good mix. It's probably, uh, I'd say 60% adult, 40% kids, mostly competitive kids that I'm coaching, um, some beginners as well. Um, but, you know, the, the beauty of it is you get to see people from all different angles and all different abilities. And I love that challenge. I'm sure you guys too. It's, it's fun to work with good players. You know, it's actually less stressful, isn't it? watching somebody clobber it and look like they're clubbing baby seals takes more energy. <laughs> you guys notice that? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, the, the joy you get from learning to um, help that player have a little more success and hit the ball a little straighter is even better too. So it's, I, I feel like it's nice to have a balance. I like working with both sides of it. And how often do you get to put on your, like your coaching hat, right? So teaching golf swing kind of would be like just, you know, plain face path and all that. 
Um, and Henry and I often talk about, you know, the difference between teaching and coaching, right? Like coaching would be more, you know, mental prep for a tournament and, you know, uh, pre-shot routine stuff. And how often are you doing that sort of thing? I like to, with my competitive players, which is probably a quarter, quarter to 40% of my business is like, these people are, you know, high school, college, or, or, you know, mini tour players, and they're working on playing competitive golf. Like when they've got tournament time, I don't like to get technical unless they ask for it. And I'm, I'm guessing, um, you know, you guys agree, like, don't, let's not mess them up when it's going pretty well. And then that's a great time to talk about the coaching and, and, um, there's so many different ways you can do it. I mean, I, I had a kid the other day that showed up and it was like, it was 41 degrees, uh, which in Minnesota is nothing, right? So it's 41 degrees and he had gloves on and he had a thin pair of khakis and I just laid into him because if you're wearing gloves, you're not playing golf at a high level, right? <laughs> and I think you better wear four layers of pants if you want to play this game at a high level and you got to have your hands warm right on you, you know, like dress for this thing. So it, it coaching is way more than that. And, and you got to dig into really what's going on in every part of their home life and how they're feeling about stuff. It all goes together, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And it's so much more nuanced, obviously. Um, and so obviously, you know, your students, you know, well, and you've been coaching them for a little while, if they're competitive, um, how are you working with them on like pre-shot routine type stuff, kind of, you know, picking targets, seeing shots, and, and then, you know, what do you like them to focus on over the golf ball? Well, I think um, generally, you know, it's got to be target focused. And I like, I like simple mantras, like look, see, feel, and hit it, right? Yeah. Or look, see, trust it, and hit it. Something simple, um, over the golf ball, just to, just to make sure that they, they don't actually start throwing some internal cues in there. We got to talk about how before a tournament, it's got to be simple, repetitive, external cues generally. Um, and I like quick routines. I like to time them out. I want to make sure that routine is similar time than any stock shot. Um, but I'm not, I'm not dogmatic about it. Like if, if there's something going on there where they need to add a little nuance to the shot because there's a different line, they need to reclub. I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect, but, um, you know, routines are good for performance. They, they make it easier to repeat over and over. Um, and, and, and I, I talk a lot about just emotional regulation, understanding the ups and downs of it all, and just learning how to take yourself up a notch or down a notch based on how you're feeling out there. And like, sometimes, you know, you're on tilt, you got to know you're on tilt. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's an important thing for 13 year old kids. And it's a hard battle, but you, you just keep reinforcing that and you have them journal about it. You have them talk about it and it gets easier and easier. And I really stress with uh, my competitive players, especially like if they're age 13, I said, you're going to be doing this competitively for another nine years. You need to realize this is one day in, in a moment and it's not that big a deal in the scheme of your golf journey. And you just keep doing what you need to do every day to get better. And if you play and if all you got today is a 72, don't shoot 73. If all you got is 96, don't shoot 97. Just give me everything you got and, and play the golf course the way it's played, right? I like that a lot. You know, Henry always beats this into my head and I didn't want to listen to him for a while, but you know, it, it's basically like every day's practice for the next day, right? And every tournament's practice for the next tournament. And it was interesting because, you know, he texted me this, right? When, right when uh, Rory had this interview the other day, but Rory said that he went over to Tiger's house to check in on him and he only found all the 15 major trophies. And he asked him where the other, you know, all the other tournament trophies were. And he said, I don't know. And he goes, what do you mean you don't know? And, and, and I think, you know, to kind of um, paraphrase, Rory basically said that Tiger alluded to the fact that all the other PGA Tour events were just 
practice for the majors. Wow. Um, and, and just practice for the next ones. Um, and in that mindset, it almost kind of takes pressure off the event itself because it's not like the end all be all I have to perform. It's just, I'm going to try to get better at doing my process or try to get better at my routine so that in the next event, I am that much sharper. Does that, would you agree with that? I couldn't agree more. And in understanding that there's no reason if your mind is strong that you can't play about the same on, on any day, any given day should be about the same, shouldn't it? We should care about the same amount. It's very hard, but that should be the goal, shouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Luke, I want to shift gears a little bit. Tell us about what rip golf is and the rip stick and about this drive for more distance and club head speed. And how does that fit into your coaching model, either with the kids or with the adults? Yeah. So we started it, you know, I, I actually had been working on it for a couple of years before we actually launched it. Um, I had kids swinging wooden dowels 10 years ago. And so I was always into it because the research out there from baseball and really any, any sport track is a great example. So you use a parachute and track or use a pulley pulley makes you go faster. Parachute makes you go slower when you run. And so it's nothing new. Um, you know, football players pushing sleds. It's about developing power and making sure the kinematic sequence is somewhat similar, but you're challenging a different part of your kind of sequence when you do it. So you swing something lighter, you can go faster. You swing something heavier, you get stronger. And in combination, there's a lot of research to back it up. So that's where Ripstick came about because we wanted to create a tool that would basically um, be very simple. You could carry one around and you can switch weights. You know, we've got basically um, eight different uh, combinations here because uh, you can do four different weights and we got a counterweight on the cap. So you can take that as well out as well. So that's the idea. Um, and I think what's a little different about our company is we really want to be holistic and, you know, Keith, your point about like chasing distance at the, at the cost of accuracy. I just don't believe in it. Um, I want everybody to get stronger and, and we have done enough studies to say that some people benefit a lot more by getting stronger and the overspeed training we would always advocate for has to be, um, you know, part of the plan, but it's not going to solve the plan. And if you got a you know, 15 year old kid that's absolutely ripping it. Uh, and they, they're not very strong and they're tilting back a lot. You got an injury risk. You got to make sure that it, uh, it matches up with the strength work they're doing. So it's all contextual, but there's a beauty about swinging a golf club or a ripstick without actually thinking about, um, where the golf ball goes that can actually make motor patterns easier to change too. So that's the other thing we use. That's probably a little different is um, a, again, we're not, we're not necessarily trying to have everybody hit as far as they can, because we want a stable pattern. I don't want your wrist so flimsy that you can't control the face. And then, um, you know, like B, like it's all about maximizing that for that single person that's in front of us. So if we want to change a pattern and want to fix a slice, we can do that. If we want to get rid of some early extension, let's prove it on a video with ripstick, uh, whatever it is. So it's just a tool. Um, it's great for speeds, great for changing patterns. Um, we got 45 plus PJ Tour pros using it now, so it's been pretty cool to see that launch. Um, and so a couple couple guys that are like top top 10, 15 in the world now. So um, they like it, they believe in it. When you get guys like you know Brian Gay and Kevin Nolik having some speed gains using that overspeed training, um, you know that it's a good it's a good tool out there. And um, what we found is that people that are already fairly fast and maybe not that strong. They don't maybe gain as much, but it still benefits them. And then the people that are fairly strong with a bad sequence, but they're kind of slow, they pick up crazy distance. And it's a, it's a really cool little predictive 
thing that we do. So we do four different tests and um, you can check, check it out on our website, but we do four tests and we can predict within 90% of how fast you're going to swing. It takes us three minutes to do. And so it's really cool to say, this is our model. And if I have somebody like I had a professional hockey player came in and he was swinging at 117, um, he hit a little fade and he, you could tell he was fighting the face. Like he didn't trust his body to turn. And so once we got the club face closed and we taught him how to swing a little bit inside out, and then we started doing some overspeed, he was up to 135 in, in, a, in about six weeks. Jeez. So you can see crazy gains on people when you get the context right. And it's all about plugging that power leak and fixing the swing first, and then you can go ahead and just put on the speed. So a lot of nuance to it. Yeah. Okay. So Keith and I are both uh, similar in size and build. Uh, we both swing it about, uh, I think I've got 108 in the tank and he's got like 106. I've got him by a few yards. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, for, I want to, I want to hear about this and I'm writing some of this stuff down. So we're looking for strength and speed. Um, my background is I've, I've played golf all my life. Good competitive golfer. Not, I wouldn't say I'm an athlete, but I'm athletic and I, um, I've never done training or anything along those lines. I've recently gotten into it and finding that very enjoyable and want to continue with doing that. What mm -hmm. can I expect and what should I be doing over the next, I don't know, three to nine months? So the first thing I would do is I would see the, the, the four tests. I would want to know your hand strength, your vertical, your chest pass, and your overhead pass. And I wanted to know if there's a little weakness in any one of those areas. And then I want to look at your sequence. So are you using the ground well? And do you feel like you use the ground well? Is there a low hanging fruit there? Or do you feel like that's pretty good already? Um, to the best of my ability and my understanding, I would say it's probably pretty decent. It could be better. Okay. So that's one area. And then we look at wrist mechanics. Are you loading it how you'd like to? And this is a really, this is where it gets to be really nuanced because I like a little wider downswing. I don't want it to be like super hinged up. So, you know, we don't need to go full on radial deviation of the downswing and yank that handle down necessarily. But are you happy with where you're at with that amount? Yeah, I'm happy with my golf swing. Yeah. So from that standpoint, you know, what we're looking at is let's probably gain, gain strength. And then let's let's see what we can do from a, just a neural adaptation standpoint to do the overspeed under uh, overweight mm. and see how much faster we can get. There's something, I mean, Bryson talks a lot about it and there's just so much evidence that going into a training session with just like intensity swinging as hard as you can, can make you a lot faster. And especially if you go underweight and overweight. Yeah. I mean, so, how, how do you get faster if you don't ever train to become faster? Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. You bring up an interesting point with strength versus speed. So, you know, I've heard about, you know, the fast twitch muscles, explosive movements, box jumps, you know, clapping, pushups, that kind of a thing. Yeah. It, it, you think that's, more valuable than strength or is strength more valuable lifting lots and lots of, you know, heavy weight. You know, usually they go together to some degree, but I think like, look at Will Zalatoris, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that guy's that strong. I think he's medium strong. I think he's really explosive. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. He's Go, yeah. <laughs> crazy good sequence. And, uh, I bet he can jump, uh, you know, out of the gym and, and I think, um, you can make up a lot for sequencing with, without raw strength. Hmm. So it's, and, and what's interesting about him is his hips are really narrow. He is so fast with his hips, 28 inch hips. I mean, 28 inch waist, that guy is twisting. Right. And so what I've seen with young kids that have narrow hips and they rotate really fast, you just put a little muscle on them and it goes forever. Hmm. So, um, you know, different ways to obviously move it, but 
you know, some guys are more like Kepka, where it's a lot of upper body strength, isn't it? Like that guy could swing a telephone pole and it's still going to go pretty far. If you give Will Zalatoris a really, really heavy club, he's not going to be able to swing it as fast as Kepka. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Different ways to get power. Um, but most people benefit from strength. There's no doubt about it. That's where our, our kind of our science says, you know, we can predict it within 90%. Um, but the explosive strength is what you're really looking for. So the, you know, push up off the ground and the clap push-ups are great. Uh, Cause that's a huge predictor and the vertical is a great predictor too. And so a person who goes through the training program, what, what kind of uh, results in terms of club head speed are you seeing? Yeah, you know, it's so broad that uh, it's hard to put like an average number on it. But usually two months in, we're 25 yards longer. Um, and we're, you know, six, seven, six, seven miles per hour longer after two months. That's Yeah, typical. I could use that. I could use that. Yeah. <laughs> I would take the, it too. The higher the level of player. And again, the more that they already have a good sequence, the less the gain. Right. So if your sequence is good and you know, you're, you're, you're already fairly strong, we're not going to gain as much necessarily. Um, so that's just how it is. But at the same time, like we've had, we've had tour pros, like, uh, we had a guy that went from about one at 108 to 118. That's a mini tour guy. And he did that in about three months. So it, it does happen. Yep. That's what I want. There you go. <laughs> now, now is that, is that competitive speed or is that all out swinging as hard as you can speed? You know, is he taking yeah. that to the yep. first tee or is that just as, you know, is that his cruising speed or is all out speed? That's all out speed going from one, 108 or one me. I think he was 110 to begin with to 118. And then usually people play best when they're swinging about, it, it's really around 95, 97% in most people, I would say. Yeah. So he's probably cruising at 113, 114, even though he can get to 118. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So when it comes to the, the, the tool itself, and I want to know your thoughts on swinging it, which doesn't have a club head or a golf ball versus swinging with a club hitter golf ball. For me, and, and Keith and I have talked about this, I feel like I and others swing better without any idea of the ball or having the club, club face on, on it. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, most people that swing a ripstick and you tell them very simply, swing this fast and make it swish, they'll swish it later and they have better sequence mm -hmm. and they have more shaft lane. And as soon as you put a golf ball in front of them, a big part of the amateur population will try to square it by basically slowing down their sequence and, you know, basically flipping the head a little bit. So their shaft lane is worse for sure. And so I think most people swing better with a stick versus a golf club. Yeah. I, I recently filmed my swing with a overspeed training swing, you know, club. And mm -hmm. then, you know, it's like, you know, I was, I sent it to Henry. I was like, this is how I want to swing a driver. Right. Yeah. But it's like, for some reason I can't, you know, I, I can't quite match that up. And it's like, I, even though I feel like I'm swinging it the same way and I film it on slow motion, it's certainly different. Right. And the sequencing is better. And, you know, like you said, like even my impact position, I was like, shoot, like I haven't really been seeing that type of look with a golf club, but I am with the, with the overspeed. And I think uh, in Fred Shoemaker had a, had a drill that he does um, in one of his, in his clinics where he has people, you know, throw clubs down the range. Right. <laughs> sure. And, and by throwing that club head down the range, right. You, you film it from the face on and everybody's leading with the hands and the club heads behind and, and their bodies out in front and, you know, all that crazy stuff. And, and people like Henry, you know, said the other day, like throw a Frisbee and everybody's sequencing is great. Right. It's like, 
yeah. put a club in people's hands and everybody just, you know, it's all hell goes to lose. It's so that, that in particular is really interesting, isn't it? How, um, you know, some people will say you need a, a for physical limitations are such an impediment to working on shaffling and lagging it. And your point is like precisely that mostly it's motor learning, isn't it? Yeah. Most people can do it. Um, and I do a lot of foam ball stuff with people because I find if I take impact out of it, because whenever people first learn to actually lean the handle forward and swish late, the face is so wide open. They won't want to play that way. Right. So right. the brain's like, this isn't going to compute. I can't do this. So then I'm going to go ahead and cast it and probably chunk it. Um, but once you get them hitting a foam ball and be like, oh, you're actually hitting it, but it's going wide, right. Now we can work on bowing a wrist or whatever you want to do there. It starts to match up. That's a good way to learn without having to go through that really hard process of hitting it all over the place and feeling it because it sucks to hit it all over the place. Yeah. Do you feel like seeing from, from a person's perspective, seeing the ball do something, you know, for their whole life, so to speak, is kind of like to the point where it's almost like so detrimental that it's, it's, you know, they're almost expecting that ball flight and they, and they, they, it's almost like they get trapped in this little, they box themselves in, right. To, to the point where you almost have to make it so different for them, you know, like the old, you know, Roy McAvoy on the range, you know, turn your hat around and put your change in your other pocket, right? Like you almost have to, <laughs> you almost have to change the environment so much to where they go back to their athletic, yeah. um, you know, predisposition, which everybody can perform a perfect impact position. Right. So it's, yeah. It, yeah. yeah, I'll do this drill where I get, you know, a pool noodle and I'll just like put it out in front of somebody and I'll rattle it like a snake. And I say, just go ahead and kill a snake. Mm -hmm. They have great shaft lane every time they have great, right. <laughs> you know, they can produce it. They just can't produce it on a ball yet. It just takes time. Right. I think, yeah, this whole shift, I think, you know, biomechanics has been a big leader in uh, the golf instructional world over the past handful of years. And I think motor learning is really going to start to become the leader in what we need to learn as golf instructors. Um, it takes two seconds to swing a golf club, but yet it's so difficult for a golfer to maintain the same intention during those two seconds. I mean, the intention for swinging the, the stick versus hitting the ball is completely different. It is, isn't it? And it's such a multi-layered thing to, to figure it out for somebody who's been casting it their whole life. I mean, you guys have had those people where you can right. make it look so good on a practice swing and it just doesn't work on the ball. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Hey, in, in, in all your stuff with, with motor learning and control, where, was, where does practice fit into it? You know, are you, yeah. yeah. It's super interesting. I mean, I love Bob Bjork's stuff. I don't know how much you guys have looked at that, but Bjork's all about, you know, the difference between performance and, and learning. And so often we'll say, well, as soon as I start hitting it bad, um, my performance is going downhill. Maybe I should stop practicing. And the research says that you can keep practicing. You can keep hitting, hitting like a dog and you can actually keep learning. And our goal in, in golf should be to learn, not to perform, right? Mm. We don't want to perform on the golf course, but we need to teach people that, that we're really chasing um, task intrinsic feedback that's important. And sometimes the task is more video oriented and technical. Sometimes it's more golf ball oriented, but we need to teach people that feedback's the key here. You got to decide what that feedback is. And then you work backwards from there. Mm. Um, and if you do that, then you start to find out, well, how do I need to practice? And then the second kind of layer to that is, do I want to do more random practice, variable practice, or do I want to do more block practice? And what level of 
kind of contextual interference do I want? Um, you know, Guadagnoli and, and some of those, uh, Tim Lee talk a lot about just making your environment hard and people are not comfortable practicing at that level of hardness. But I think for the high level player, that's really important to make it hard and frustrating because we learn faster when you're challenged, right? And people chase that practice effect of hitting perfect seven errands on the range. And that really isn't golf, is it? So it's, it's so hard to get people out of their comfort zone, but it's important. You touched on two things that I really liked, feedback and working backwards. I, I, I have our PGA students do a little experiment uh, assignment type thing where they basically reverse engineer what they would teach a beginner golfer. Start with the ball flight that you want, recognize mm -hmm. the impact conditions that you need, what does the club need to do to produce it, and then what's the setup that the player needs to be in in order to make that most easily. Love that. And uh, it's interesting because we all end up at about the same place. I mean, 95% of us are at the same place when we finish, which is really interesting. I think golfers could learn a lot from that. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, you, you talk about blocked versus random practice. You're a pretty darn good golfer, if I understand correctly. Um, and you have a tournament coming up. Is that right? Yeah, playing in the PGA National, and I had my first round today, so I'm excited to oh, practice. Oh, sweet. Nice. So <laughs> well, first what round is... you, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, so, so what does it look like for you? I mean, obviously, this might be a little bit different uh, than, than what I was expecting, but uh, what's it look like for, you know, a high-level tournament player to prepare for an event of that magnitude? You know, how does your practice differentiate from from the, the weeks and months leading up to the event? I'm different because I almost look at myself as a science experiment. I mean, Me I'm just too. out there to kind of be observational and to learn what I can. Um, I actually don't get nervous anymore because my expectations are basically, let's just go learn and see what I can do. And for whatever reason, some days I hit it well, some days I don't, you know, just like everybody. Um, but for me, it's just about the fun of, of the challenge and no expectations to win or make the cut or anything. I just like, I just like, I tell, I tell my students, like I get out there to go feel feelings and mm -hmm. to go figure stuff out. And that is actually to me, pretty joyful. Even if I shoot 78, it doesn't bother me like it used to, but you know, I played like you guys, I played four or five, 600 turns in my life. And it's like, it's not that big a deal. It's just a fun day to go feel stuff. You know, that's what I like. I, I totally get it. When yeah. my experiment hat is on, I learn so much. My practices are good. They're fun. They're enjoyable. The rounds are fantastic. And then once I put that damn player hat on, all hell breaks loose. And it's hard. It's frustrating. There's results. I hate it. It's not fun. It's hard. Yeah. But, you know, that's what it makes us better teachers, I think, by doing it. When you stop competing completely, it, uh, it, it, it can make you a little bit immune and almost desensitized to the, the struggles of the player. So, um, my next challenge, as soon as I probably get through this tournament, is to start playing left-handed. I'm going to see mm. if I can break 80 left-handed, because nice. I'm, you know, like, like you guys, like I don't know if I'm going to get better right-handed anymore. I kind of feel like I plateaued a little bit. I'm like, I want to go through this learning beginner beginner thing from the other side. So that's my probably my, my next project. Yeah, that you know that's interesting. And and what you said there about like the learning, it's almost like when you have, I can't remember. There's a there's a phrase for it or a term for it or where when you're in some in a competitive environment that's so challenging it sucks in the moment but then as soon as you're done with it like you're like you need that again even if you get your ass kicked and it's like you 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 didn't handle it well but you want another opportunity to go try to handle it better and it's like you almost just want to work yourself back into contention into event 
just to try to learn to handle better being in that situation, not like to play better necessarily, but you, you just, it becomes so apparent, like the mental pitfalls that you get into and, you know, the, the, and the hurdles that arise that are different from when you're in 35th place teeing off on the last day versus when you're, you know, in the actual position to maybe take the title, you know, it's, I find that to be almost more elusive and, and more fun to chase than, than the score itself. Well, you've got a great kind of growth mindset to it, Keith. And I, I don't know if every amateur can appreciate that. You know, you guys, we've all kind of had played under the fire and feel what it's like, but um, it's hard to get there. And, and I think, you know, um, for amateurs, it's, it can be just demoralizing to feel like you can't hit a shot in front of people. Um, and you feel like you tee off on the first hole and it's like everybody's watching you. That's really hard and scary. But right. if you can just have some curiosity about it, you can work through it and be like, oh, what am I feeling today? And can I do this better next time? I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Sometimes I'll take amateurs to pro-am events, which I play in regularly. And, you know, just that little bit of turn the knob, turn the dial up on the pressure on the, you know, on the, I, you know, every putt matters type thing. And you really see, you know, some golfers not handle it well. And sometimes I almost get concerned. Like, did I put this person in a situation that they weren't quite ready for and now they're going to be sort of like turned off on the game so to speak and then you know you try to have that conversation with them like hey you got to go through that to figure out what you're deficient at in order to know what to practice and I think it's like you said once you stop competing you you, you do become desensitized to the concerns of your students when they say well I was teeing off on number one and I you know I didn't, I couldn't remember what we talked about and, or, you know, whatever. And you're in, in, until you've been there, it's very hard to, to kind of commiserate with them. Oh yeah. It's, it's all about just, um, you know, playing the game so you can understand it through their eyes. And that's, I think the biggest thing for a, a teacher that can play can help that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, no. we've, we've taken a lot of your time and, and we really appreciate it. Henry, you got any, any last questions for, uh, for Luke? I've, I've learned a boatload here. Yeah, Luke, I appreciate you coming on. I thought this conversation was uh, very nice. I think that, uh, you know, you were very easy to talk to. I got a lot out of it. And I think that we could probably do this more often if you're up for it. I think uh, I appreciated it very much. Well, I, you guys are, are on the exact same page as I am about this and the importance of it. You know, it's like there's different podcasts out there, but this is exactly my line of stuff. So I'd be, I'd be honored anytime. Just, just let me know. It's fun stuff. Awesome. Yeah, It'd be cool to chat with you, you know, at some point after, after the national championship and, uh, and, you know, kind of see what your experience was and, and, uh, how you handled that. I know, uh, Henry and I talked about, you know, I'm putting some goals together to play well in some events this year. And, and, and Henry reminded me once again, right. I'm just practicing goal setting. Right. And so next time, you know, after the event, it's not a success or a fail. It's just, you know, what, did, what went well and what went, what didn't. And then, you know, try to try again on the next one. Right. And, and those things just are resonate at whatever level you're at, aren't, aren't they? I mean, if you're shooting right. 120 or you're shooting 74, it's the same. It's yeah. The that's, same. What's, that's what's so great about this game is that everyone's striving just to get a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, Luke, uh, where can people find out more info about you? Um, yeah. you know, if they want to check out your research or your products, uh, where can they find you? Yeah. If you want to go to ripstick or rip rip golf, ripgolf.com or ripstick.com we've got uh, some stuff there and and uh, i'll be publishing the thesis here soon so that'll be cool i'll send it over to you guys if you're interested you just read yeah. that fact you don't have to read the whole thing but <laughs> um 
but yeah, it's, uh, it's starting to grow pretty fast and we're excited about it. Thanks for uh, plugging it a little bit. And uh, yeah, if you guys want to pick up some speed, it's a good place to stop by. And again, we're, we're all about nuance and making you better, not just necessarily longer. We don't need uh, more long hitters in the woods. We want you to- <laughs> yeah. Bryson found that out this weekend, <laughs> right? <Mark> 67. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He'll learn. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Luke. It's really nice meeting you, and I look forward to chatting again in the future. Good luck uh, playing. Um, maybe I'll yep. run into my uh, my older brothers down there competing. Uh, oh, too, yeah. so okay. Maybe you'll run into them. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks, right. Luke. Appreciate it, buddy. Yep. Take Bye-bye. care.